What do one-eyed ogres, the Lord of the Rings and Dwarf Elephants have in common? Well let me tell you by welcoming you into the world of Greek mythology and a story about Odysseus, who was also known as Ulysses, and was the hero in Homer's epic The Odyssey. One of his most well-known stories is when he and his crew were prisoners of a cyclops called Polyphemus, and today we're going to talk about the mythology of this encounter. How old the myth is? where it originated and what it has to do with dwarf elephants and the plot of Lord of the Rings. And before the end of the video we will reconstruct the earliest form of the myth which originated from over 10,000 years ago, something we call a proto-myth. And so if this sounds interesting and you want to learn more then make yourself a cup of tea because this is Crackenford. Cyclops were the one-eyed ogres of Greek mythology, and it has often been suggested in recent times that their origin of this monstrous man began with the discovery of elephant skulls on the Greek islands. Now, this was an idea originally suggested in 1914 by the paleontologist Orthenio Abel, who, when seeing these dwarf elephant skulls, noticed that the nasal opening, the place where the trunk would meet the head, looked like a socket of a large single eye. But more about this later. Now the myth of Polyphemus and Odysseus has been retold in many tales and it was originally thought to have been an original Greek myth, with Polyphemus first appearing as the man-eating ogre in Book 9 of the Odyssey. But it was only when Willem Grimm wrote the Saga von Polyphem the legend of Polyphemus, that academics realised that this was not the source of the story and thus it started much research and analysis about the origins of the myth of Polyphemus. But to start our journey in understanding this myth, we first need to know it. And so I'm going to tell you an abridged version of the story of Odysseus' encounter with Polyphemus. Zeus, the cloud gatherer, forced a storm upon our hero Odysseus's ships. Battered from battle and worn from winds, the ships found themselves at night with clouds around, hiding the stars and hiding any land. The north wind had blown his ships out of control, and so he was forced to lower the sails and let the sea take him wherever it wanted. And soon he arrived at the land of the Cyclops, a land of mountains and forests, and here the caves were the Cyclops' homes. These one-eyed giants were lawless folk, trusting in immortal gods and hunted and gathered most of their food, for toiling was not their want. There Odysseus and his men rested overnight, before he took twelve of them to explore further, and as part of his expedition his crew took with them food and a goat skin of dark sweet wine given to him for watching over the priest of Apollo's child. They soon came across a cave with a high ceiling and around it was a court high walled with trees all along these walls and in this court lived a solitary monstrous man set on lawlessness and who shepherded his own flocks. Odysseus's men noted this monstrous man was tending his flocks in the field and so they looked in the cave and saw there was much food, cheeses, milk, newly born lambs. Odysseus's men wanted to take the cheeses, then leave in haste. And this would have been a good plan in hindsight. 
but one that Odysseus decided against as he looked around. But he looked around for just a bit too long, and before he and his crew could leave, the monstrous man entered the cave with his flocks and sealed it shut with a large stone, so large it would take many men to move it. He then penned his flocks in and sat down at his fire. And there, that was the point he noticed Odysseus and his men. In a voice so terrible and deep, the monster said, Strangers, who are you? Where did you come from? And why are you here? Odysseus replied, We're from Troy, and we're wandering at sea due to wild winds. We want to get home, but came here looking for help. I do not believe in your gods and have no fear of them. There is no reason why I should spare you. But tell me more about you. Where did you moor your ship? Odysseus replied cautiously, Our ship was wrecked on the rocks some way away. Then the monstrous man grabbed two of Odysseus's men in one swoop and crushed them as though they were helpless puppies and ate them. Odysseus and his men were trapped, but luckily the Cyclops, having eaten, drank some milk and he laid amongst his sheep to sleep. Odysseus thought of ways to kill this Cyclops, but knew he and his men would be trapped in the cave if he was successful. Dawn came and the Cyclops woke, readied his flock and took two more men for his breakfast and then rolled the stone away, let out his flocks and left the cave, but immediately rolled the stone back, keeping Odysseus and his men trapped inside. Odysseus started thinking of how to escape and noticed that by the sheep pens there was a huge club belonging to the Cyclops and a staff of green olive wood. It was as large as a ship's mast. He and his men took little time to smooth that staff and make a point of the end hardening it in the fire and then hiding it under the mess the animals had made. The evening arrived as did the Cyclops back in his cave and he made sure to roll the rock to cover the entrance. The Cyclops carried out his chores and took two men for his supper, but before being eaten, Odysseus said, Why don't you drink this wine to help wash down your meal? I brought it here as an offering so that you might send me home. The Cyclop asked Odysseus if he would tell him his name, but then decided to drink a cup of wine and then asked for a second and a third. It was then Odysseus spoke. I will tell you my name. It is No Man. That is the name given to me by my mother and my father. The Cyclops replied, No Man, you will be the last I eat amongst you all here. That is my gift to you. But no sooner as he finished his sentence, he fell asleep. Odysseus and his men grabbed the staff and placed it in the hot ashes of the fire. And just before it caught fire, the men picked up the staff and thrust it into the Cyclops's eye and spun it around, drying it in as far as they could. This monstrous one-eyed man cried out so loud that Cave rumbled. He pulled the staff from his eye and blinded and bleeding, he called out for help, hoping other Cyclopses in nearby caves would hear. One of them did and called out, Why are you screaming, Polyphemus? Are you okay? No man is hurting me. No man is slaying me, was his reply. Well, 
You must have a sickness. Go back to sleep, his neighbour replied, and his footsteps faded away. Polyphemus found his way to the rock blocking the cave's entrance and moved it, in the hope of catching the attention of other cyclists outside. He stood in the entrance to let nothing pass, but the morning's dawn soon came, and the sheep in the cave went to go outside. Polyphemus felt about them to ensure Odysseus and his men would not escape, but overnight they binded fleece to themselves and then held themselves under the rams, and with this disguise they were able to get past the cyclops, and once in the fields Odysseus and his men untied themselves from the fleece and headed back to their ship. And there they were met with joy, but also sadness at the loss of some men. They did escape the island, although Odysseus's adventures did not stop there. But those adventures, well, I'll save those for another day. Justin Glenn wrote an essay called The Polyphemus Myth, Its Origin and Interpretation, in order to try and understand the source of this myth. And from this, the most complete attempt for reconstructing the earliest version of the myth was Hackman's 1904 historical and geographical approach. Hackman suggested that the original form of the myth within it had four parts, the blinding of the giant without his consent, the flight of the hero under the belly of the ram, and the moment at which the hero gives a false name, and the magic ring episode. This last part was not in the Greek myth, but was popular in other versions of the myth, and I'll explain this later, and how this links to the Lord of the Rings. So, after further analysis, Hackman concluded that the myth would have travelled to northern Europe via Turkey and or Greece. Uh, however, Hackman's conclusion is based on an unclear corpus of data, and his methods of using this were not clear either, and the versions of myths used were unclear, and so we don't know where they were from. And so this presents a problem of understanding the geographical origin of the story. And that is something that Glenn reiterates in his paper, suggesting that at the time he wrote his work, there was no solution available to find this myth's origin. And he was not alone in it having issues. We see this repeated in much work within the essay. And even in later analysis, there are general issues which occur to those researching mythological origin. And these issues are that bias that is introduced on oral tradition over literary influence, not understanding that as the collected myths used to establish the earliest form are not uniform in their distribution, and so again that would give bias to location, not taking account of transmission of myths outside human migration, and not taking into account how different myths may have transformed from or into this myth. Now within Glenn's work there were other suggestions on the myth's origin, which we can dismiss, including Grimm's due to his focus on the Cyclops eye being a solar symbol, and an allegory of nature's struggle, good versus evil, night versus day, winter and summer, which is a common allegory for the time this was written, but one that has been dismissed many times. Although it is also fair to say that Grimm was really not alone in suggesting such a source for this myth. We also see in Edward Taylor's view that the Cyclops, uh, he considered an evolution of Greek seafarers, so early, early Greek seafarers' adventures in encountering cannibalistic tribes. Although for Greek seafarers to then influence so many other regions' mythology seems very unlikely. 
And the final suggestion which I'll mention here is uh, Willem Manhart's view that Cyclops were originally forest or mountain spirits of ancient Greece and so evolved from earlier European folklore. But this theory of being spirit-related slowly lost fashion and support over time. And so the question you may well be asking yourself is, what research am I aware of that resolved these issues? And some of you may even be asking yourself, where is the like button? Well, the answer to that is it's down here. And as for the research, we now have the benefit of 21st century science and a method we call phylogenetics, which analyzes all the myths as though they're siblings as opposed to parent-child hierarchy, and so does not presume a gap between myth and folklore. It also understands key motifs and discrete characters when building trees of links, and it also takes into account that mythological evolution, whilst often aligned to genetic evolution, doesn't always follow its patterns, and so recognises that as myths diverge and transform, the more distant their genetics, then the more we see this as being reflected in different versions of myths and their relationships, their geography and temporal distance. Now I do often compare mythological evolution with biological evolution and the statistical tools we use to understand genetic evolution fit well when analysing myths. And so it is these that allow us to produce results that give us a statistical probability of the story evolving from an earlier version in this time and geography. And the results I will talk about in this video will give us a level of confidence as to the key parts of the proto-mythology of Polyphemus in an early form, although this is almost certainly not the very first version of the myth, and it will lack some of the rich poetic detail these myths have today. But it will help us have confidence on which motifs were in the earliest version, and then we can apply some creative license to recreate this proto-mythology. However, I'm also aware that prehistoric mythology leaves almost no empirical data, and this is often used as an argument to say that these myths aren't older than the Epic of Gilgamesh or other myths written in the literary record. It is just guesswork. However, myths do have certain properties we can use, and as I say, they can be an analogue of genetic data, and these are the myths have discrete heritable units, so items that can pass between versions, and these are mythemes, the motifs and the type of story, and these are passed on through imitation, teaching and learning of the story. They often evolve at a slow rate, although occasionally there is a fast evolutionary process in specific circumstances. They are passed from parent to child or through general transmission. They have innovations either through mistakes or through environmental or societal changes. And they evolve with geographical and social separation, or they are sometimes combined with other myths or have sp specific information imposed on them. These attributes, as well as a few others, parallel them closely with genetic mutation. And again, this gives us confidence that the analysis performed on them is valid. Now, for the research. The Polyphemus myth was defined as a tale in which a person gets into a homestead associated with a master of animals or a monstrous shepherd, where the host can kill the hero, but the hero escapes by sticking to the hair of an animal or under the animal's skin. Defining this allows us to scope the existing myths to be understood and to be brought together for analysis. And this first analysis produced results on whether 
the methemes retained a phylogenetic signature. And this was within a corpus of 79 uh, methemes across 24 versions of Polyphemus's tails belonging to the European and North Amerindian regions. Now, before I go into the analysis a little bit more, I'd like to briefly explain how we look at myth. A myth can belong to groups, and the two key groupings we are tend to use are adventure and tricks and, and cosmogony and etiology. And we split these down into further groupings, but in effect, at the top layer, it is, is the myth about how the world came to be, or is it about something that's happened in the world? And then we also assign motifs to myths, with motifs being general plot pieces, and assign these consistent references across myths. And we can see this in repositories such as the Bereskin's database and the Mythology database. And I want to take this opportunity to say thank you to my patrons for supporting this channel, which includes the work in developing the Mythology database, a resource useful for anyone who wants to research mythology. And so here are the results from the Mythology database, looking at some of the key motifs here. We have me and nobody in the demon's house, which on first look seems to align to an Indo-European influence to motif based on its geographic dispersal. We have the blinded Cyclops motif, which seems to be spread further afield, so maybe from an agricultural traditions dispersal. But in the motif Escape from Herdona's Cave, we see the myth has travelled into North America, given the first impression of a very old myth. And if you want to access this mythology database and see early episodes of these videos and discuss research, then feel free to join my Patreon. The details are in the video's description. Now, back to defining the myth. And after its groupings and the motifs, the final piece of mythology to understand here are the mythemes, which are pieces of syntax that are consistent between myths. Uh, a good example we see is in Isaiah 27.1 of the Bible. And the mythemes in this passage are fleeing serpent and twisting serpent. And so you then see these exact terms, the same mythemes, in Ugaritic texts, which are several hundred years older than the biblical texts. And from this, you can start putting together an argument that the Bible borrowed this myth from the Ugaritic tradition, as they were their neighbours and an earlier tradition. The phylogenetic analysis results showed alignment between the logical and historical reconstruction of the myth, and also alignment to the distribution of haplogroup X2. This grouping was in prehistoric Europe and has been shown as migrating across the Bering Straits and into North America around 20,000 years ago. Now, if we're honest, this wasn't really a surprise from the data we were seeing. I've already shown that the escape from herd owner's cave motif is having such a correlation. This informed the research that further analysis was required and this was applied to a larger set of myths, which included uh, typological variations on the Polyphemus myth. And this was hoped to give us a better understanding of the myth's origins, because it could be argued that the myth came from North America into Eurasia, albeit very unlikely. The additional data used came from a number of literary sources, which covered the following traditions, as well as Book 9 of Homer's Odyssey and a medieval French text, Romans de Dolopathos, written by Jean de Haute-Zilly, all of which are fully referenced in De Hoy's original paper, Polyphemus, a phylogenetic reconstruction of a prehistoric tale, if you want a bibliography of the sources. And there are more details of this in the video's description.
below. Now, having correlated all this data, these various myths of Polyphemus were analyzed using a questionnaire which took into account known variations and traditions they were part of. And these questions were applied to each myth, focusing on myth themes, as these are often constant when myths migrate. And the results of this research noted a number of developments within the myth. The earliest form of myth looked at the monster as a master of beasts. And this is conserved in the Swiss version of the myth. And there is thinking that this was lost partially due to migrations at the last glacial maximum, pushing populations south to the coast of the Mediterranean. This would explain a primitive version of the story being manipulated around the northern Mediterranean. Now, the story develops as it migrates back north into Lithuanian, Hungarian, and then Russian and into Finnish traditions. The second migration transmitted the myth to Gascony, and the third migration transmitted it into the Basque area, followed by the Black Sea area and into northwestern Europe. It is worth noting that the links between the ancient Greek trading cities along the Black Sea coast and the ancestors of the northwest Caucasian peoples are undoubtedly due to extensive borrowings and influences in the myths of both people. However, this doesn't explain the link to North America. Well, the data points to a split in the myth before 20,000 years ago between the Valais people based around what is now Switzerland and splitting into other forms of the myth that went into North America and to the Mediterranean and the Near East region. And to understand this split, there is a hypothesis called the Sapir Age Area Hypothesis. And this states that the area of greatest divergence in a language family is often its source. And so looking at this graph, the left hand side shows the original split of the myth and then how it filters through traditions as we go on to the right. We see that the Valais distribution on the left hand side in the light blue is far more remote than the North American and Mediterranean Near East split. And so we would consider this as the most diverged. And so this informs us that the origin of the myth we know today would have originated from there, confirming the Swiss version as the earliest form of myth. But what this also means is the proto-myth of Polyphemus was probably being told before the glacial peak of 20,000 years ago. And whilst we see an origin of the myth told today from Switzerland, it is probable that it may have been told in Northern Europe earlier than that, and that the Ice Age removed our ability to trace this there. The other conclusion we can arrive at from this research is a phylogenetic reconstruction of the myth based on the most probable mythemes. And only those results that showed a highly confident result were kept. So those that are really greater than 50%, although there were some mythemes that gave a statistical probability of more than 75% as being in the original story. The result is a proto-myth that is told as follows. In effect, this is the earliest form of the Polyphemus myth we can reconstruct with confidence. And the writing in italic is the reconstructed mythemes based on the best statistical analysis, whilst the writing in bold, we have the high confidence in being an original mytheme. There are at least two monsters who live in a tent and possess a herd of wild animals. These animals are locked away 
there is a hero who is a hunter and he enters uninvited into the homestead of the monsters with the purpose of stealing something, usually animals or treasure. Then the entrance is blocked with a great stone or locked door and a monster tries to kill the hero whose location is given away. The entrance is unblocked and the animals are checked as they go outside and the hero escapes by hiding under the belly of an animal. From this we see that the motif of nobody or no man does not yet exist in the earliest version of the story, which conforms to our mythological database information, but neither is there a blinded ogre motif as there was in the first version of the story I told. But I did mention a connection to the Lord of the Rings earlier, and some of you may want to know where this is. Well, from this research a number of the most popular motifs were discovered, and although not necessarily part of the original myth, these were that it was usually a spit used to cook the hero's companions that was used to kill the ogre. But when the ogre was blinded and couldn't see, he throws a ring at the hero. The hero then wears the ring, which happens to be magical, and so it shouts, here I am, here I am. Now, cast your mind into the evil eye of Sauron in Lord of the Rings, the single eye, and what happens when the ring is worn? Sauron knows where you are. However, in these tales of the ogre and the ring, the ring could not be taken off and so the hero is left to cut off his own finger to stop the ring's magic. As for the Cyclops, some of the myths do have ogres with two eyes and it seems as though the Cyclops became part of the myth when it arrived into the northern Mediterranean. And so we have to say it is inconclusive on whether the single-dyed ogre came to life due to dwarf elephant skulls. But there is perhaps one other issue, and some of you may already be thinking this. How can a myth that is 20,000 years old be about hiding under a sheep belonging to a shepherd? Because this is happening before farming. Well, my thoughts are that they may well have been the ability to herd a number of wild animals together, as wild animals are said to be herded in the original myth. And so it doesn't mean they are domesticated. And I'm comfortable with this. I mean, we were eating grasses long before agricultural farming, but it is also a possibility that we have myth-informing history. We've seen it in other myths around metalworking, for example, with the Smith and the Devil, a tale about metalworking, which was older than we thought metalworking was. But archaeology has since found evidence of metalworking aligning with the age of the tale. But to conclude the Polyphemus research, the bottom line is that the origin of this story is at least 20,000 years old, very possibly from Central Europe, and was about a master of beasts concept. So perhaps herding wild animals was happening as a precursor to farming. And if you watch more videos explaining these older myths, then I'd recommend watching this video about the origin of the death myths and immortality. I have plenty of other videos on my channel that may interest you too. And so with that, please stay safe and stay well. And this was Crack and Fold.